Hi there! You are about to listen to a vintage episode of the Under the Microscope podcast. While the content is still as relevant and as interesting as when it was recorded, our webpage has changed. You can now find us at thesciencetalk.com slash real-scientist-nano. Welcome to the 20th episode of Meet the Curator. This series is brought to you by the Real Scientists Nano team. Our goal is to provide a platform where scientists can communicate their work and interact with the public. With that in mind, every week we introduce you to a scientist working in the field of materials and nanoscience, who would be curating the RealSci underscore nano Twitter account. Stay tuned to know more about this week's curator. Today we have with us Rachel Oliver, who is a professor of material science at University of Cambridge. Hi Rachel, how are you doing? I'm all right, how are you? Wonderful. Um, let's start. Uh, could, you, could you tell us how did you end up in your current research field? So I've been working in this field for a long time now, so I guess I started my PhD in the year 2000 and I've been working on gallium nitride and materials like that ever since then. Um, the thing that I was always kind of interested in as even at school and as an undergraduate is like ha, what, what materials are like. You look at them and you can see they have certain properties and you make things with them and they have certain properties. And why are they like that? And I came to understand that as a material scientist in terms of what I call structure property links. So what links the, the small scale structure to how the material behaves. Um, and that's maybe my my overarching interest. And actually, gallium nitride is a really exciting place to explore those kinds of questions because it has some unusual features of its nanoscale structure that affect the properties of the materials. They affect the devices you can make. So that was, you know, an exciting opportunity to do a PhD on these re these really cool materials. And I've just sort of followed that up ever since. Okay. Well, that structure property um, connection, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Awesome. Um, so could you tell us where and how does your research, uh, where does your research fall in this big picture of materials at nanoscience? Where does it fit in the big puzzle, so to say? So, I mean, I'm, so this kind of picture of structure property links is what I think of as kind of classic material science. There's a thing called the Oh, Milton Fleming tetrahedron of material science, which is a, a, a four pointed figure. And at the points, each of the points of your tetrahedron, your triangular based pyramid, there's structure, properties, processing, and they're then holding up the top point, which is the performance of the device you actually want to make. So that's what material science is for me. It's the link between the structure of the materials, how you process them, how you make them, what properties you get out, and then what useful things, what performance you can do with these materials. So if we kind of then dig a bit deeper into that, if we talk about structure property links, what I'm most interested in is the nanoscale structure. Okay. And what's very important to me is really understanding that in depth. So I do a lot of microscopy, I use a lot of other techniques which access that nanoscale structure. Um, I guess some people, if they hear the word microscopy, might principally think about light microscopes, but I'm much more likely to be using something like an electron microscope, a scanning electron microscope, a transmission electron microscope. 
things which access the properties of materials, the structure of materials, right down at the kind of few atom scale. And what I want to do is understand how the building blocks of matter down at that scale then control what you can actually do with a device which might be a light emitting diode it might equally be we make transistors for example for controlling power levels but it's all about making the material right at the small scale to get the performance you want at the large scale mm -hmm. okay wow so it, it sounds like you do a lot of cool cool experiments and you are doing a lot of cool projects um, oh yeah i mean i lead these days quite a big group so we have we have quite a few different projects going on here. Um, the stuff I enjoy most is about the light emitting devices, but we're working really hard on um, electronic devices for switching power as well these days. Uh -huh. Okay, cool. So if you had to pick, pick one research project or an experiment uh, that you are most proud of, uh, could you pick one and explain it to us in simple words, please? Huh. It's a bit like choosing between your babies. So I'm I'm very proud of the work I've done on atom probe tomography of nitride semiconductors. Now that's quite, there's quite a lot to explain there. So I'm gonna start off by talking a little bit about atom probe tomography and what it is as a technique, okay? okay. Um, so what we're always trying to do is look at the materials right down at the atomic scale, understand the small scale, the nanoscale structure, okay? And ideally, we might want to know about how the atoms are positioned, but also about which atoms they are, what the composition of the material is on the small scale. Um, and atom probe tomography is one way of getting at the composition of materials on the nanoscale. Are these atoms gallium? Are they nitrogen? In a um, light emitting diode, we'll also have indium gallium nitride. So we'll have some indium in there. We'll have some other, other elements as well. And what we do in atom probe tomography is we actually make our sample. We start off with a, a, a semiconductor wafer, effectively a plate of semiconductor. And from that, we create a tiny needle, which is just a small piece of semiconductor um, with a neat, sharp needle point, which is only 100 nanometers across, ideally. So a really, really sharp needle, much sharper than a needle you would sew with or a, a, a pin you'd have on a badge or something. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about very, very sharp points is you can create a very large electric field around a very, very sharp point. So you, in traditional atom probe tomography, you have a metallic needle. Okay, so you might do this on steel or on a titanium alloy, something along those lines. And you um, have that sticking out in a vacuum and you apply a very large bias between some kind of counter electrode and that needle. You have a very, very large electric field around that point. Mm -hmm. That electric field can actually pull the atoms off the end of the needle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it pulls them off the end of the needle and they go flying to a detector. Now, this is the clever bit. OK, firstly, you need to have just the right electric field. So you pull off just one atom at once and then it flies to the detector. And because the end of your needle is a beautiful hemisphere, it flies out along a path that follows what would be a radius of that hemisphere. So you can tell where it came from if you know where it lands. So it flies to the detector, it lands at a specific spot, and you can track back to where it must have come from. So that tells you what its location was on the end of your needle. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then you evaporate more and more and more atoms, and you figure out which all of their locations were. 
OK, and you know that you can't evaporate atoms except from the surface. So the um, the sequence with which they evaporate tells you you're going back through the material into the length of the needle because you have to do the very tip of the needle first and then evaporate it away and go further and further down the needle. Mm -hmm. So you know where each atom came from on the surface and where the surface was at different points. The last thing you need to know is what each atom is. You need to know what element you've got. Mm -hmm. And you, what you know is how long, you measure how long it takes from applying a voltage pulse that causes the atom to fly off the end of the needle to it landing at the detector. So you, you work out its time of flight, how long it took to move a specific distance. Now, heavier things, if you apply the same amount of push, move more slowly. So you view, if it takes longer, it's a heavier atom. If it takes less time, it's a lighter atom. So that time of flight tells you what atom it is. So now you've got effectively from all that information, the position of the atom in 3D space and its chemical identity. And you can actually one atom at a time build up a three dimensional map of exactly what the composition of all of that material is. And in metals, the, you can actually do that so well that you can see adjacent layers of atoms in your picture so what we call your resolution how small a feature you can measure is actually at the scale of a single atom which is pretty amazing okay so an atomic resolution compositional map in three dimensions okay now for a long time people only really did that on metals because you need to be able to apply this voltage pulse that kicks the atom the, sing the single atom off the end of the tip that's really important mm -hmm. and if you have semiconductors they're not very conductive and the voltage builds up a bit slowly and it's difficult to kick a single atom in a controlled fashion off the end of the tip mm -hmm. um, but some clever people um, in some of them in Oxford, some of them elsewhere, realised that you could hold the tip at a steady voltage and instead of having a pulse in the voltage, you could apply a little pulse of laser light. So you could just warm up the atoms a tiny bit with a little bit of laser light in a pulse and have the same effect. So now we do laser pulsed atom probe and we use the laser to pulse. We say we know the time of the laser pulse and we see how long it takes from the laser pulse for the atom to fly to the detector. Mm -hmm. okay. That means we can now do atom probe tomography, well, on the sorts of materials I work on, like gallium nitride that aren't very conducting. I have seen atom probe tomography experiments on um, ceramic materials, so things that really don't conduct at all. Okay. Mm -hmm. I have seen atom probe tomography done on Belgian chocolate. I'm not quite sure why, because they mostly figured out it contained carbon and hydrogen, which I could have told them quite quickly all by myself but you know they're progressing even towards these complex <laughs> organic systems okay so these days atom probe tomography is really really widely applied and it's becoming more and more common out in industry in all sorts of scientific fields but when i first started doing these sorts of experiments nobody had done atom probe tomography at all on the sorts of materials i work on okay. and I had a question I wanted to ask where I really needed to know the three dimensional chemical variation inside my LEDs. There was a theory about how they worked, which relied on the idea that when you made, when you put indium into layers in your LED, it formed like little clumps. So rather than being the indium all spread out all throughout a layer in the, in the LED, it was all in clumps and that those clumps were completely vital to making the devices work. And there was a whole group of people who said there are these clumps and they're completely vital to making the devices work. And then 
there were another group of people who said, no, you're not doing your microscopy right. There's a problem with how you're characterizing these materials. The clumps aren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were doing, both groups of people were using electron microscopes to characterize mm-hmm. these clumps of indium. Um, and one group thought they were doing their electron microscopy brilliantly. And the other group thought that the electron microscope was actually damaging the material and creating what looked like clumps of indium, but were actually just a product of it being in the electron microscope. Mm-hmm. And it was a really big row. I mean, literally at the point of people at scientific conferences shouting at each other. And you know, <laughs> it's all a bit of a problem. And I thought, well, how can we look at this a different way? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm in Cambridge, but I had friends at Oxford who use atom probe tomography on metals. And they were talking about these new laser pulse systems that might let them look at some other materials. And I was like, I have got just the right first problem for you guys to try this on. <laughs> just to settle the argument here. <laughs> we are going to settle this argument. We're going to do it with a completely new technique. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trouble was we had to basically invent from scratch how to prepare the samples so that we could make these tiny needles and get them into the microscope. And then we had to figure out from scratch how you ran the microscope for this new material. Mm-hmm. But eventually we did that and we discovered we couldn't find these little clumps at all um so and this was in good material that was useful for giving out lots of light but we couldn't find the little clumps of indium they weren't there i have to say it didn't solve the controversy Mm -hmm. (laughs) because people were like oh you know that that's because you're doing your microscopy wrong you're doing the atom probe tomorrow but we were pretty confident in our data i think the thing which eventually persuaded people we were doing the microscopy right we did another experiment where we made a tiny needle Mm -hmm. we took it in the tem and we bashed it with the electron beam until we could definitely see clumps we put that needle in the atom probe Uh and then we imaged it and then we could find the clumps so you could actually create the indium clumps in the electron microscope and then image them in the atom probe and what was great about that was we'd firstly we proved that the atom probe could find the indium clumps if they Mm -hmm. were there yeah Mm -hmm. and secondly we had a piece of the same sample that hadn't been bashed in the electron microscope and one that had and one Mm -hmm. of them had clumps and the other didn't so that said directly the problem is with the electron microscope the clumps weren't in the original material so that that whole set of work i'm very proud of because it changed how everybody in my community thought about the small scale structure of these devices Mm -hmm. and also for a whole other community of researchers, it said, okay, these this group have worked on gallium nitride, which is a, a wide band gap semiconductor. It looks like it should be particularly difficult to do atom probe on, mm-hmm. and they've used it to solve a real problem. So that means we can do atom probe on all sorts of difficult things now because they can do it on gallium nitride. So it's probably in many ways my most influential piece of work because it influenced the nitride community, the people who make the LEDs, but it also influenced people who do microscopy on lots of other materials and kind of persuaded them that atom probe was a a good tool whereas maybe before they thought well this is great if you study steel or if you study aluminium alloys but it's not for me so yeah I'm, I'm very proud of that yeah I can understand why you're proud of it I mean this 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 is this is brilliant I mean there was a controversy you took it um you you started working on it and there were still people who were questioning the the findings like oh, yeah, your atom probe uh, tomography is not working or something so you created the clumps in the electron microscope and showed that your technique works and you actually proved uh, 
one side of the controversy? <laughs> there are still people arguing. I think scientists just like arguing. <laughs> you know, it's it's um, as long as it's a constructive conversation and discussion, I think it's okay. As long as it's not shouting at each other uh, at all times, I think it's fine. Or <laughs> yeah, and I think um, so. One of the things I'm then really interested in is can you create those clumps of indium on purpose? Because mm -hmm. people thought they were a good idea when they thought they were there. So can yeah. you create them on purpose? And if you do, do they make better devices? Ah, okay. Oh my That's God. a good question. Oh. I can't answer it just now, but it's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably the next time we are recording a podcast with you, maybe then you can answer it. Hopefully by then you have an answer to that. Yeah, I have the beginnings of an answer, but it's quite a complicated answer. People might be bored by the end of my answer to that. <laughs> Let's save it for the Twitter uh, curation then. <laughs> you can engage with the audience as well, that more than one audience then. Okay, so I must say that you explained that term uh, probe tomography really, really well. I understood it, most of it, I think. Uh, that brings me to my next question, which is, uh, do you teach? And if you do teach, which are the courses that you would like to mention? So I'm currently, as in this week, teaching two courses. I am teaching a course called Device Materials, which is about electronic and optoelectronic devices and the materials we use in that. Mm -hmm. The thing that's kind of funny about that course is that, so I'm a semiconductor scientist um, <laughs> and that I, I didn't define the syllabus for my own course. It was defined by my department and there are no real semiconductor devices in my device materials course so this week i have been teaching um liquid crystal displays Ooh. which is fun it's really interesting science but it doesn't map as well when you say, say rachel teaches device materials you think oh well, that you know she's teaching about her own research oh no but you know I've, <laughs> I've been having fun teaching liquid crystal displays i have some nice 3d models i have been waving at the students we discussed um chiral molecules so twisted molecules mm -hmm. using like twisty pasta this week that was quite fun so yeah it was good um, <laughs> and the other thing i'm teaching at the moment is a course on atomic force microscopy now that sounds a bit like atom probe but it's actually another form of microscopy mm -hmm. um, but that's a form of microscopy i've been using since i was a graduate student and that i i really enjoy using myself it's something that i have really good hands-on skills at and i'm also very happy explaining so i've been having a nice time that's a graduate level course and um, teaching graduate students, having some really in-depth discussions with them about what you can do with an atomic force microscope. So that's the other thing I'm teaching at the moment. Okay, that's interesting because I'm, I'm really happy and pleasantly surprised that there is a complete course dedicated to atomic force microscopy. This is we do a little bit on things like scanning tunneling microscopy as well. Mm. and It's quite a short course, but yeah, we do six lectures on that, that general area. Uh-huh, okay. Cool. That sounds interesting. Maybe you can also tell our followers about the device materials. Uh. Oh, I'd have to, if I, if I tried to talk about that as well, I'd need another curation week. And I wouldn't be very knowledgeable. I, I do keep ahead of the students on these devices, and I, I'm sure I do know more about liquid crystal displays currently than they do, but maybe only a little bit more. <laughs> maybe you can uh, draw some uh, draw some points from... The, the Twitter community. Maybe yeah, someone maybe can tell me about liquid crystals. That would be good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Let's uh, go a bit away from the teaching and more in the research experience now. Um, I'm sure you're having fun with, I, or rather, I hope you're having fun with your research um, at the moment and you had fun so far as well. 
Um, if you had three wishes to improve your research experience, what would you ask for? And I'm not making promises here. So, <laughs> so my three wishes would be equality, diversity and inclusion. So three very short wishes. I guess I can expand on that a little bit. I'm spending a lot of my kind of non-lab time at the moment really working hard to think about ways to help science be more diverse. Um, so my field is very, very male dominated and um, it's quite international and there are lots of Japanese and Chinese scientists involved who are doing fantastic work, but the ethnic diversity is beyond that fairly limited. Um, and so because of the community I sit in, I'm kind of very aware that we're a, a quite narrow community in terms of the people involved. Mm -hmm. um, and I care about that for lots of reasons. I care about that because I think science is better when you have people with different experiences, different cultures, different ideas coming through because they can think about scientific and problems differently and bring new solutions to the table. And we need new solutions in the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think science misses out from being quite a narrow community. And I think also, you know, th th this is great. Science is fun. So it's only fair that that should be open to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and I tend to talk about equality, diversity, inclusion as really three separate things. And they kind of um, build on one another. OK, mm -hmm. So when you're talking about equality, you're often talking about trying to make your processes fair, trying to make sure that nobody is biased against. Um, and hopefully that will help you achieve diversity. It will hopefully mean that there's a much wider range of people applying for jobs, coming and getting involved in experiments, all sorts of things. But none of that will stick if you don't create an environment that's inclusive, which is there where the inclusion comes in. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have experienced as members of minorities very hostile environments in science people's ideas being put down because of who they are because they're female or because of the color of their skin and you know there's only so long you can expect people to kind of put up with that kind of hostile environment mm -hmm. so in order for any of these efforts we have around you know policies for i don't know double blind reviewing of applications or whatever to actually be worthwhile we have to think about how we interact with one another, how we are as a community and looking after people and make sure we're inclusive and welcoming of everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that in my own practice and also in the sort of campaigning activity I'm doing, I work very hard on. So that's, yeah, if I was going to do one thing about science, this is what I would do. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's, that's yeah, I you, you, you summarized it really well. And I come, I'm just going to say plus one to what <laughs> you just said. <laughs> Or plus 1000 or plus infinity, if that is possible, to support it. Absolutely. I think it's extremely important to have equality, diversity, and inclusion. And they go hand in hand. All these three words or these ideas or these terms go hand in hand. You you put it so well. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, okay, we're going a bit away now from the sciences or still in the sciences, but not really the research part of it probably it is um what are you most looking forward to in the next three months oh uh, so this does come right back to my research um so oh, oh i guess nearly two years ago now i got a big grant ooh, 
two and a half million pounds, so lots of money, for a new microscope. Okay, mm. and it took where uh, took a little while for the money to come through, and then the better part of a year to do the ordering process for the microscope. Because if you're ordering very expensive things, you have to stick to some very strict rules. Mm. And then after that, it took a little while to get the microscope installed and working in the lab mm -hmm. but as of today it is fully signed off literally i signed the sign off sheet this morning um, we've already done quite a lot of experiments on it but my new microscope is working right now uh -huh. um, so i'm really looking to see forward to seeing the new data we get out of that tool um, what it is it's a scanning electron microscope which means um that we scan the surface with an electron beam mm -hmm. and there's loads of those about the thing that's special about this is that when you um, hit the sur a surface or hit a sample with a very energetic electron beam you get electrons bouncing back and mm -hmm. that's what you normally do electron imaging with okay but you also um, create other signals within the material so what we're interested in is the fact that you when you hit a surface with an electron beam if it's a optoelectronic material you actually get light out mm -hmm. and that means you can measure the light emitting properties of the material at the length scale that the scanning electron microscope images so when we measure light emission properties with an optical microscope we might be measuring them on the one micron scale so one one thousandth of a millimeter okay mm -hmm. In the new system using the scanning electron microscope, we're going to be able to do 100 times better than that. So we can look at the really, really small scale at the light emission. Now, that's actually also not that new, although our system is one of the best to do that in the world. But it can do a whole extra thing, which is it can look at the time scale of the light emission. So like I was talking about the atom probe tomography, you make a laser pulse and then you time how long something happens after it. Mm -hmm. Now we can put in a laser pulse and well, we know we can put in an electron pulse and time how long after that the light emission happens. And we can see how the light emission rises and falls with time after that pulse comes in. Um, and when I say talk about time, the time scales I'm talking about here are tens of picoseconds. Mm -hmm. So a second divided by a thousand divided by a thousand again, divided by a thousand again, divided by a thousand again, you get mm -hmm. to picoseconds. <laughs> I think I did the right number of divisions by a yeah, thousand. Yeah, four times, four times ten, uh, one thousand, yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so these are incredibly short timescales these processes happen on. Mm -hmm. But it's actually not just seeing the fact that light is emitted, it's showing you things about the process by which light is emitted. Mm -hmm. So it's like... Um, if you imagine you're trying to understand an engine and you can see that there's a car that is moving, well, great. But this is like being able to kind of lift up the bonnet and watch all the pistons moving and seeing the actual processes in the engine that make the car move. These processes, the timescales of these processes tell us about what's driving the light emission in our light emitting devices. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's pretty fantastic. It's going to let us access information about small scale structure and how that relates to the light emission processes that have never been seen before. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to be doing that on my materials, so gallium nitride and indium gallium nitride and things like that, which obviously mm -hmm. I'm excited about. Mm -hmm. But we've also got um, colleagues and collaborators from all over the country who are coming with different materials. So 
last week we were working on silicon for solar cells we've got somebody coming in a few weeks time to look at diamond materials um we have people looking at organic materials all sorts of different things but addressed using this new technique it's gonna be fab <laughs> okay wonderful that sounds really really cool um Awesome. So before we end, um, could you tell us, could you explore a bit on uh, or shed some light on what are the challenges faced by um, the field of materials and nanoscience in general? Like what are the big challenges, the big questions that the materials and nanoscientists are trying to answer? Okay, well, I don't know if many people are trying to answer this, but they probably should. So, <laughs> so some of the devices I work on are things like light emitting diodes, which mm -hmm. Their, their nanoscale structure is really important, okay? But um, we d we're not talking about devices which use a single tiny nano object. Um, we're talking about actually quite big devices and I wouldn't say they're easy to manufacture, but there are known manufacturing processes. And those kinds of devices, although we're still making them better, they're, you know, light bulbs, LED light bulbs are on your shelf and you can go buy one. And in the manufacturing process, they make thousands and thousands and thousands of these things and almost every one of them works. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's how manufacturing needs to be. You need to be working at a yield, a, num a percentage of working devices of, you know, more than 90%, probably more than 99.9% ideally. Okay. Mm -hmm. The other part of, another part of my work is devices which really rely on the properties of one single tiny nanostructure. Okay, one quantum object. So that might be one little tiny crystal of indium gallium nitride that is, I don't know, 10 nanometers by 10 nanometers by three nanometers, and everything relies on that one object. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we can make amazing quantum devices, and we can. Okay, this bare fab. If I had a second choice, my second favorite baby after the atom probe tomography, I would talk about devices based on single tiny crystals. It would be great. Mm -hmm. Um, but the problem is when I know from my own work, when we make these very, very complex quantum devices, the yield of those devices is terrible. If you make a hundred of them and one's working, you're really quite pleased with yourself and you do a lot of experiments on that one device. And that's fab. You can write fancy papers. You can, you know, make your career do quite nicely because you're proving all sorts of exciting physical phenomena. It's all great. Mm -hmm. um, but that isn't going to go like that from the laboratory to the manufacturing environment. Right. You've got there's a huge amount of work to be done taking these novel devices, new nanomaterials, new quantum systems, things that really work at the pointy end, the hard end of nanoscience and getting them from brilliant ideas that work in the lab and give you one flashy hero device to something that you can make hundreds of time after time after time and that you can sell and that will work in the consumer context. And for me, I think that's a really big challenge that a lot of the time we kind of overlook, we step away from, because it's not the most exciting bit. It's not making the thing happen for the first time. Mm -hmm. It's making the thing happen consistently right. every time. And it needs collaboration with engineers um, who perhaps have a different mindset, who know more about manufacturing processes and manufacturability and these sorts of things. Um, so people talk about this kind of valley of death for technologies whereby people can get things to the prototype stage and there's a big gap and then you're at the stage where you're manufacturing thousands of devices and you're I don't know making millions of pounds I'm not making millions of pounds this week <laughs> um 
and it's it's bridging that gap between the wow i can make a fancy prototype to this is something that works consistently manufacturably this is a technology that is going to go beyond academic science go beyond a university out there into the real world and make a lot of difference to people's lives and i think that gap is a big challenge across all the new technologies but perhaps particularly kind of nanoscience and quantum systems Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, basically the bridge or the the connection between the first discovery to the production line. That's yeah, absolutely. And uh, the community needs to work on that or someone needs to think about it and start working on it. Yeah, and I think, um, so we kind of have to accept and admit that sometimes the way you made the first thing mm -hmm. and the way that eventually you'll make millions of the thing may have to be completely separate because there are things you can do in a situation where your single device is so valuable to you that you can spend hours on it and effectively handcraft it you know and it's like I don't know it's like a Fabergé egg it has so it's beautiful and perfectly and precisely engineered by your own sort of fair hands mm. but that isn't a thing that allows you to make millions of devices that are off into the real world mm. um, and that's another kind of part of the gap between the kind of handcrafting processes that are okay in a lab context through to the, the machine driven processes that will be the real world solution. And I think I think a lot of people don't have there are or rather there aren't a lot of people with the knowledge that bridges that gap. There are people on both sides, but maybe they don't talk to each other well and they don't have a common language always. Mm -hmm. Also from the funding point of view, right? If it's a research... Yeah, there's a funding gap in the same place as well. Yeah. So there are like a bunch of uh, factors which yeah. are not so really helping the valley. It's, it's never easy to get grant funding, but it's much easier for me to sell as a concept, I am going to make the first XYZ, than yeah. I have shown how to make XYZ, but the yield of my device is only about 3%, and I need to get it up to at least sort of 50% before anybody in industry will have a conversation with me. That's hard to sell to a grant funder. <laughs> it's not that that convincing or it's not that exciting probably. So the funding yeah. structure also needs to be changed to some extent. Yeah, and I mean, the in the UK, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council has a whole strand on manufacturing. So it's not that like the the funders are completely ignoring this, but I think it's still a place where more work is needed. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's 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 a very um, very fair point and a fair fair challenge, and I hope we are working towards it uh, in the scientific community. Um, Rachel, it was lovely to speak with you. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Uh, no problem. We, we look forward to your time on Real Sciano. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you for listening to this podcast. The next week's curator will be introduced in the 21st episode, which will release on the 8th of December 2019. To know more about us, please visit our website, realscientistsnano.org, and follow us on Twitter at realsci_nano. underscore nano.